Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. What do you think is the most popular backyard fruit tree in America? Hey, you're right. It's the apple. And backyard fruit tree growers know that there is a wide variety of apples that are downright juicy and delicious, unlike anything you've ever tasted from a grocery store. What are the most popular backyard apple trees? What are the tastiest? What are the easiest ways to grow apples? We're going to find out today when we talk to fruit tree expert Phil Purcell. Maybe you've already listened to episode 7. That was feed your soils, not your plants. Maybe you have a good idea about the benefits of adding compost to your garden soil. And maybe that inspired you to start a compost pile. Well, today we're going to tell you which kitchen scraps and yard waste can go into that pile and which products you should avoid. We'll have that and a lot more on this episode 17 of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, brought to you by SmartPots. And we're going to save you some time, too. You're going to get your ears back in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Let's talk about apples. It is the most widely adapted deciduous fruit. The deciduous fruit tree is one that loses its leaves in the wintertime. Apples grow all the way from central Florida in the southeast as far north to the northeast into Canada and in every western climate. There are big commercial orchards in places like New York, Michigan, and Washington, and even here in California as well. And you might be surprised where they grow it commercially. We're talking with Phil Purcell of Dave Wilson Nursery. They're a wholesale grower based here in California, but they sell fruit trees throughout the western United States. And Phil, you were just telling me before we started here that there's a commercial grower of apples in Hawaii. There is. Over there on the Big Island, they've been growing you know, low-chill, our California low-chill apples, uh, and having success with them. And I was I was pretty amazed. The last place you would think is a tropical island like Hawaii to grow apples, but, you know, apples are super adaptable. And, uh, you know, they, they do have pretty good success with a couple of varieties, Anna and Dorset Golden. We, we should mention what exactly we mean by low-chill. Uh, when you grow fruit trees, deciduous fruit trees, the idea of chill hours is very important during winter dormancy. Chill hours basically anything between 32 and 45 degrees, and that helps the trees set a crop for the following year. Low-chill uh, for apples would be, what, 100, 200, 300, 400 hours Mid-range is, what, 500, 600, 700? And most of those fruit trees that grow commercially back east, I would think, would require 800 to 1,000 chill hours between November and February. Right. And mostly, you know, back east, chill generally is is not an issue. Uh, As you get into more of the temperate climates out here in California, you know, the, the past thought has always been, you know, that we don't get quite as much chill that has success with apples. But, you know, we're doing more and more studies with uh, the UC system out here. It's, it's starting to become a little eye-opening. What are the, the biggest selling varieties that you have there at Dave Wilson Nursery? Pretty easy. Fuji. Fuji and Fuji. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, then it's followed by, it's kind of like your, your, what people are used to, right? So it's Fuji and Gala and Pink Lady 
Honeycrisp, Granny Smith, Golden Delicious, uh, Red Delicious. There's probably 10 that make up about 80% of all the apples that I sell. And do apples need a different variety nearby for pollination reasons, or are many apples self-fruitful? So many apples are self-fruitful. You always get, with apples, you always get a, a, a bigger crop if you can have another variety to help cross-pollinize it. But uh, certain apples, you know, like Fuji apple, if, if you plant one in your backyard, you're going to get plenty of fruit for you know your family and your friends. It's you know, if you really want a high yield, then we always suggest putting a, a pollinizer, another variety of apple that blooms about the same time you know, in the yard. On this program, we've talked a lot about uh, backyard orchard culture as far as maintaining the height of fruit trees at six or seven feet. So you never have to get on a ladder. All the fruit is within easy reach. If you keep your apple trees at six or seven feet, will you still have plenty of fruit? You'll have plenty of fruit. In fact, the, the trees in my backyard our my tallest apple tree is about six six feet and it's it's a nice apple bush and it's really easy to pick those apples and maintain the tree that way and i get so many apples it's unbelievable i would think that anybody wandering into a nursery just about any place in the united states right now or throughout the summer would probably still find apple trees available is it okay to plant apple trees in the summertime sure you can plant you know fruit trees throughout the whole time throughout the whole season it's just in summertime you got to just be a little bit more cognizant of the heat and the water requirements and not letting a tree dry out before it gets established so right now is a fine time to plant and when we're talking about uh, planting it correctly in the summertime that would include i would imagine after you plant it is to uh, maybe cover it with about four inches of mulch just to help preserve that soil moisture absolutely you know, it's if you're in an area that has exposed a lot of hot, exposed, you know, sun hitting the, the soil, the best way to keep that moisture in there is is to put a, a nice thick layer of mulch in there. And that really helps young trees get established so that they can get a nice root system going. You mentioned earlier that some of the bigger selling varieties, uh, especially here in California, are Fuji, Gala, Golden Delicious, and Pink Lady. Are the tastes of all Americans the same, or are there areas of the country where they want certain varieties? You know, it seems like when you go back east, they're a little bit more used to different varieties and a little bit more of the heirloom varieties. A lot of these apples originated out of the, the east coast. So kind of uh, they do plant the Fujis and the Galas, but, you know, they're more into more of the European varieties. You know, something like a Belle de Bascu, a Cavell Blanc, a Roxbury Russet. Those are varieties that are just being introduced here in California, but those are just old standbys that you would find in someone's backyard in, you know, Maryland or that area. That's something that's been grown there for centuries. If you have a real, real sweet tooth, I recommend the Colville Blanc. That is a classic French dessert apple, and it is just so sweet, but it's also good for cooking and for cider. Yeah, exactly. That's the one thing that is really unique about apples is that they have a very long shelf life, so there's a lot of different uses uh, you can do with the apple. Eating them fresh off the tree is is so much better than, you know, getting them store-bought. Because, let's face it, the store-bought apples are picked early. But then you can cook with apples. You can bake with apples. And something that I've gotten into the last year is making my own uh, ciders. Mm. And just using different 
varieties of apples to kind of, you know, tweak the taste of it. But that's there's so many different varieties of apples out there. There's something for everyone. Yeah, I think uh, among the favorites that I've grown over the years, uh, Colville Blanc is up there because I have a sweet tooth. And the other is a large green apple called Mutsu, M-U-T-S-U. It's, it's large, it's crisp, it's flavorful. And it has a kind of a late harvest. Usually here, it's a late September, early October. Yeah. The nice thing about the Mutsu is that it is uh, good for ciders. It's a late harvest. But this is just, it's a hearty apple variety, you know, to plant out there. At Dave Wilson Nursery, you've done taste tests over the years, what, uh, something like 20 years or so of taste tests. The apple varieties, and I, I've been to your apple tastings, and if you can imagine sitting for a day in a room and tasting like 30 different apples and judging them on seven different criteria points, you realize there's actually a lot of variation in the flavor, the taste, the aroma, and the look of apples. And I noticed that in the overall scores of these fruit taste tests over the years, the the top winners are Red Fuji, Spitzenberg, Pink Lady, and uh, Honeycrisp. Honeycrisp, I guess, would be kind of a newcomer to that list. It is. It is. Now, here's here's something that's kind of interesting that I didn't know before I started working for Dave Wilson Nursery. But I would say that one of my favorite apples, and I think one of the most unique apples out there, is the Granny Smith. Mm. And you're thinking, Granny Smith, they're so tart. You think of that as a pie apple. In our harvest chart, we say that, you know, the Granny Smith really should be picked, you know, November or, or such. And that's when you kind of see the Granny Smith start showing up in the grocery stores, right? The fresh, the new uh, season Granny Smiths come in, and it, it's about that time. Well, Granny Smith should actually be almost like a golden delicious when it's picked. So when we're picking our Granny Smiths off our mother trees at the nursery, we're picking them at the end of uh, December. Oh. And the flavor that you get off that Granny Smith is unbelievable. The tartness is taken out, but you get that great Granny Smith flavor, and you get that great crunch Getting, you know, and it takes all the tartness off. And at that point, I realized that for all these years, I've been eating unripe Granny Smith apples <laughs> in the grocery store because Granny Smith should look almost like a golden delicious when it's picked off the tree. The light greenish yellow color. That's one great thing about apples is they're okay to remain on the tree, aren't they? They are. And that's, yeah, you're, you're right. They hang on the tree for so long. Unlike a lot, a lot of the stone fruit, now, they'll hang on the tree right for about, you know, two weeks and they drop. An apple will hang on a tree for months. What's nice, too, is if you practice backyard orchard culture and keep your fruit trees at six or seven feet tall, you can have a lot more varieties in your yard as long as you've got the sun for it, of course, because right. uh, apples ripen as early as June and, as you said, as late as December. And there's probably, what, 30 or so different varieties in that time frame over those six months that uh, you could be eating fresh apples off the tree. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the way in my backyard, because, I'm, like I said, I'm doing uh, ciders. I do have some really early varieties, you know, like Honeycrisp is one of them. I, I end up with... Uh, with the Granny Smith so that I can do cider making throughout the, you know, the summer season and kind of prolong it into kind of the classic everyone thinks about apple season as the fall. Well, sure, it is. It is the fall. 
but great apples are in, in available in the middle of the summer too. Exactly, and they're so much tastier when you're picking them off the tree, like you said, rather than uh, dealing with them in the grocery store. And besides, uh, in the backyard, you don't have to try to open one of those plastic bags that never open. Exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, the other great thing about doing your apples by your, you know, at home is you're able to control absolutely anything that goes on that tree. If you want to grow an apple organically, you know exactly what's been been put on that tree. So, you know, that's the one thing that I love about growing fruit in my backyard is I'm able to really know what's been put on that tree at what time to, uh, you know, get the best tasting fruit and the healthiest fruit. Exactly. You you can avoid a lot of pesticide use uh, in the backyard. And not only that, when you're picking an apple or any piece of fruit off a tree and eating it, you're getting much more nutrition than you are if that if you went to the grocery store and ate one that's been sitting in storage for who knows how long. Sure, sure. So, I mean, for the beginner uh, growing fruit, you know, a fruit tree, apples are, I'm not going to say fail safe. However, they're a great beginning fruit tree to go out there and work with. Because, you know, they do produce, you know, a relatively large crop as they start to to mature. You can enjoy it throughout the whole season without having to worry about, I got to go out there and pick it right away before the birds get to it. You know, because you're going to get this long hang time with apples. Well, not only that, but by keeping them at six or seven feet tall, they're easily covered with bird netting, too. Right. Exactly. A lot of good reasons to grow apples. If you want more information about apples and the varieties that you may recognize as growing in your own neighborhood, check out the Dave Wilson Nursery Catalog. They're a wholesale grower of fruit, nut, and ornamental trees based here in California, but sell throughout the country. DaveWilson.com is their website, and you can go to their home garden catalog and uh, find out information about all the varieties, as well as the taste test results, too, which is not a a bad criteria to use if you're picking out trees uh, for your own backyard and you don't know much about them. Well, go with what panels. And and these are are the judgments of several hundred people, isn't it? Yeah, we we bring, you know, we're doing a taste test and we bring in panels. And so everyone has their own taste preferences. But when we tally up the results... Those are the varieties that were, you know, came out as at that time as as the best tasting. And it's like you say, it's a great place to start. I mean, we do over 60 different varieties for the home garden market and it can be overwhelming. So, you know, you go to find out what our taste test winners are and then you figure out when do you want that apple to harvest? And then from there, you can go ahead and really branch out in your apple orchard. And if you're not listening to us in California, if you're listening to us back east or down south or way up north, have a chat with your local independent nursery person about the best varieties for your area and the timing of it as well. We service all the independent garden centers, and we make sure that the varieties that we put in the independent garden centers are really right for each geographic area. I just found a a page in the DaveWilson.com catalog for cold country favorites for apples for the Northwestern fruit grower. And they talk about uh, Ashmead's kernel, which is also one of my favorites, Fuji, Honeycrisp, and Mutsu. Right. So those are kind of like the, the go-to you know, up in the Pacific North Northwest. You know, down in Southern California, it's more Anna, Fuji, Dorset, Golden. Same with kind of like in the, the Florida panhandle. They, they really like the, the lower chill, the gala apples. 
like I say, we, as we were doing, you know, studies at the South Coast uh, Field Station in uh, Irvine, California, and it's it's becoming eye-opening that more and more of these varieties that we thought maybe should only be done in cold weather areas are, you know, they're adaptable to what we consider, you know, a low geo Southern California, very temperate climate. So, you know, that's kind of exciting that when people thought they only had the ability to plant a couple of apples, well, now, you know, as we keep on doing some more research, I think that this opens up the the apple cart for, you know, people in areas that are just, you know, in a, in a, a more temperate climate. Yeah, exactly. Wherever you are, experiment with apples. Exactly. You, you just might be surprised. You know, we should point out, too, that at DaveWilson.com, there's all those fruit tube videos that will explain to you in great detail how to plant the tree, how to care for the tree, what to do if problems develop, how to uh, prune the tree, uh, all sorts of great information there at the uh, DaveWilson.com website on uh, getting that tree from a baby all the way to a thriving adult. Yeah, we, we put, you know, we put together these videos just to show that growing a fruit tree in your backyard is not as difficult and not as you know, time consuming as, as you think. Just as long as there's a you know, few tips that we give along the way to make sure that tree gets off to a good start. I mean, if you, you keep that tree knowing that you're going to keep a branch low at the very beginning, don't want to get that tree too tall, you're, you know, you're going to be able to manage that tree throughout its whole life. But it's important if you're going to practice a backyard orchard culture to start with a young tree and kind of do what the farmers do out here in California. You know, we call it the knee-high cut, but they cut, you know, trees low so the branch stays low. And the reason they do that is just easier to harvest. There's no need to have a big lollipop tree where the canopy starts at five feet. Well, that tree is going to get to a too large of a tree so soon that the only people, you know, it's just the birds and the squirrels we gain that fruit. So start with a nice young tree, keep it pruned low, low branching, and then, you know, you'll, you'll have plenty, so much fruit on a six-foot tree. It's unbelievable. Well, I guess we're going to have to have you back in the near future, Phil, to talk about, okay, what about for all these people who inherited a full-size fruit tree in their backyard? Can they bring those down to size? And yeah. That, yeah I we, mean, we could fill a show I, with that. I, yeah, that's that's you know, one of the, 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 the biggest questions I get. And, you know, hope is not is is not out of the question on something like that. Exactly. And plus there's videos of the process up there at DaveWilson.com as well. Phil Purcell, obviously, with Dave Wilson Nursery. Phil, thanks for talking apples with us today. Yep, thanks for having me on. How many of you have ever taken a fruit pit, stuck a couple of toothpicks in it, and suspended it over a glass of water with about half the pit sitting in the water? Pretty soon, roots develop. Well, now you might be tempted to take that pit with the roots and stick it in the ground. That may not work. Debbie Flower, our in-house college horticulture professor, explains why. And she explained this back in episode five as far as starting cuttings of rosemary in water versus soil. When you do some research, if you do some research on the Internet about propagating rosemary, many people suggest sticking the cuttings in water and you'll find pictures of cuttings with in water in a clear glass and roots coming out the bottom. And it's very true that that will work, but the quality of root that is produced in water is very different from the quality of root that is produced in uh, a media, and a media being a soil or soilless mix. 
And the reason for that is the, the difference in the amount of oxygen in the two uh, materials. Water has oxygen when it first comes out of the tap, but as it sits there, the oxygen leaves. And so it becomes very low in oxygen and you get a low oxygen route. But if you stick the cutting in the mix I suggested, half perlite, half vermiculite, or in a seed starting mix, you, there's much more oxygen in that media and you will get a different route. And if your plan is to ultimately grow the the plant, the rosemary, on in in a pot of soil, then you want to start your cutting in soil, not in water. I'm proud to have Smart Pots as a sponsor of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. I like their products. I use their products. I would buy their products again. What exactly, you might be asking, is a Smart Pot? It is the original award-winning fabric planter. It's sold worldwide, and it's all made right here in the United States of America. Smart Pots come in a wide array of sizes, too. They can be reused year after year. Go to their website and check out all that they offer and get a lot more information about Smart Pots. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers as well as select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. They're also available at Amazon.com. And I tell you what, if you visit their website, smartpots.com slash Fred, you can get a nice discount if you buy those Smart Pots on Amazon. Hmm. Check it out. It's smartpots.com slash Fred for your discount on Smart Pots. It's the original award-winning fabric planter made right here in the USA. Let's delve into the Garden Basics email bag. Jan from Harold, California writes in and wants to know if foxglove, sweet peas, and other such plants that are considered poisonous can be put into the compost pile. Well, Jan, as long as the compost pile gets hot enough, around 140 to 160 degrees, those poisonous plants should not be a problem as long as they're allowed to age in the compost pile. But to help us out here on this Q&A, let's bring in our soils expert, Steve Zion of Living Resources Company. He's been a soils expert for over 45 years. And Steve, there's a lot you can put into a compost pile, isn't there? Yes. Any kind of organic matter can be kitchen and plant waste, uh, fresh grass clippings, vegetative material, uh, manures from non-carnivorous animals, non-meat-eating meat-eating animals, fish emulsion coffee grounds, alfalfa, cottonseed meal, blood meal, soybean meal, fallen leaves in the fall, straw, wood chips, shredded newspaper, sawdust, dried vegetation, pine needles, and the list goes on. Okay, how about a list of what you shouldn't add to a compost pile? Um, Things you want to avoid, anything that's dairy, bones, meat, fish, synthetic fertilizers, because they they're high in salts, and they will kill the microscopic organisms. For some reason, and I don't really know why, but they don't like peanut butter. They don't suggest you put peanut butter or salad dressing. But salad dressing, I think it's the oils, and you don't want any oils or fats or lime. Uh, any plant waste containing pesticides. Wood ash, a lot of people are thinking they want to add wood ash, um, and it really messes up the pH of the compost. Uh, pet waste, grease, and fats. Weeds. Weed seeds, horse manure, human waste. Not horse manure. You you don't add horse manure. Why? 
I, d- I don't like if it's aged horse manure, maybe, but I don't like the raw stuff um, unless you know the sort that the how your horse uh, was health was maintained because uh, a lot of the horses get various antibiotics and medication to keep them healthy, and that stuff comes out in the manure and it it's designed to kill microscopic organisms and it will continue to do so if you add that material into the compost pile. When people go to the show notes, they will find some links that will uh, enumerate on what to add and what not to add in the compost pile. So you don't have to be jotting this down while driving. <laughs> that'll, that'll be helpful. Yes. Don't forget, you can get your garden question in to the Garden Basics podcast. Give us a call, 916-292-8964. You can also text that number to leave a picture and a question, 916-292-8964. Also email fred at farmerfred.com. That's fred at farmerfred.com. And you can also leave a message and maybe with a picture as well at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page or on Twitter at Farmer Fred. Don't forget to tell us where you live because all gardening is local. So there was a shopping list on the counter. I was going into town, so why not pick up the groceries? Well, truth be told, I really do enjoy grocery shopping at a supermarket. I love to marvel at the amazing variety and selections of fruits and vegetables that are available most of the year. It's really quite a sight. Well, on the list was strawberries. Being a dutiful husband, I picked up a carton of strawberries at the supermarket. Big red strawberries all snuggled together in their little plastic box. Well, at dinner that night, the strawberries appeared in the salad. Uh, But there was a word of warning from my wife who says, you know those strawberries? They're tasteless. And I had to agree. They were as hard as rocks as well with no juice. I should have known better. Because it's strawberry season here. But still, supermarket chains are dealing with commercial growers who can supply an entire chain of stores of product that who knows when it was picked or how long it's been in storage. Those strawberries were raised to grow quickly and look good, not necessarily taste very good. And I was kicking myself. I should have gone to one of the many roadside stands in our area that are selling strawberries right now, or even a farmer's market on the weekend, or heaven forfend, Farmer Fred, maybe you could grow them yourself. Well, you know, I do grow a lot of different fruits and vegetables, but not when products like strawberries are just so convenient and so available. I just shouldn't get them at the supermarket. That's all. And guess what? Those supermarket fruits and vegetables, those other ones, they may look pretty, but they're not nearly as nutritious as the ones you grow yourself. An old academic study has received new life among heirloom vegetable gardeners. Making the Rounds is a research paper conducted back in 1999 and released in 2004 at the University of Texas. The conclusion of that research, supermarket vegetables available in 1950 were healthier than the ones purchased in 1999. The vegetable's nutrient value, including protein, calcium, iron, and riboflavin, has declined in recent decades, while farmers have been planting crops designed to improve other traits. That's according to the study. The study was conducted by Dr. Donald Davis of the University of Texas Austin's Biochemical Institute. 
He concluded that the most likely explanation was the changes in cultivated varieties used today compared to 50 years ago. During those 50 years, there have been intensive efforts to breed new varieties that have greater yield or resistance to pests or adaptability to different climates. Or for the farmers I know, to be first to the market with that product. But the dominant effort is for higher yields. Emerging evidence suggests that when you select for yield, crops do grow bigger and they do grow faster, but they don't necessarily have the ability to make or uptake nutrients at that same faster rate. So those supermarket vegetables that were available back in 1950, well, now they would be considered heirloom varieties. But you don't have to go with all heirloom varieties. Many of the fruit and vegetable hybrid varieties that are available for homeowners now are not only great tasting, but have disease resistance built in and yet have a lot more nutritional value than the varieties available at the grocery store. Remember, as Dr. Davis said, those commercial varieties are primarily altered in order to produce way too much than it normally could, thus not being able to uptake nutrients at that increased production level. And trust me, homegrown varieties of fruits and vegetables produce plenty for you and your family. Just ask anyone growing zucchini about that. So if you want inexpensive, pretty vegetables or fruit for display purposes, well, then go get them at the supermarket. But if you want the absolutely best tasting, most nutritious fruits and vegetables, grow them yourself or at least get them at a farmer's market. And I'll tell you something, one bite of those from the farmer's market just might inspire you to plant one or two in your yard tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's available on many podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, and many more. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a comment or a rating. That helps us decide which garden topics you'd like to see addressed. And again, thank you.